It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who in the end, at the best, knows the triumph of high achievement, but who in the end, at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Teddy Roosevelt, April 23rd, 1910, delivered as part of a larger address at the University of Paris in Paris, France. That single excerpt from that 35-page speech has been a, a buttress for people to get them through the naysayers of life. And not only individuals, but entire nations have drawn upon this small excerpt. It stands alone and has stood for over a hundred years now on its own merits. And we hear something like this, and, and among other things, we know one thing. Words are powerful. Words that are then strung together to make phrases or complete sentences. And that these carry like freight behind a train, meaning that actually have propositions that assert things. Sometimes true, sometimes false. And even more, some of these propositions will never die. But like so many of God's good gifts, the greater the gift, the uglier the distortion of it. We see all around us how even the sexual revolution of the past half century or so has worked its corrosive effects on on so many uh, aspects of how we just live our lives today. A good gift, horribly distorted. And it only makes sense that Satan would want to release his most effective strategies on God's most beautiful, powerful gifts. And such is true when it comes to speech. The fact that you and I speak words could be one of, if not the most, God-like thing about us. We possess the ability to communicate, not only with one another, but with God Himself. Words are powerful. Please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 3. Having reached what is perhaps the midpoint of this book, James continues to teach us about the nature of true, genuine religion. And as you recall, James concludes the first chapter by saying this. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. And your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion is this in the sight of God the Father. 
It is caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So true, authentic religion, the kind of religion that isn't a sham, but is genuine, it's recognizable. We can know it when we see it. It's demonstrated in how a person speaks. One aspect of genuine faith, genuine religion, is evidenced through the power of the tongue. Now, I wonder how many in the room this morning currently have a job where speaking or or communicating is sort of how you spend your eight or nine hours that you work each day. Uh, Is speaking sort of the way that you spend your work hours? Perhaps you're an educator, a receptionist, marketer, teller at a bank, customer service representative, salesman, journalist, manager, nurse, lawyer, or something similar. Now, you might think that you have a fairly safe job. Definitely more safe than maybe uh, someone who might work in a factory, perhaps handling uh, heavy machinery where there's a decent level of, of danger there, but that person may really not communicate with anybody in the course of their day. They may just do their thing. They may stand on an assembly line, and, and maybe they even work with toxic uh, materials or things. So we might think, surely I'm more safe than the person in that job. Well, James might have a different angle on it. He would say that the most dangerous job award goes to the person who speaks the most. How do we know this? We see this in verse 1. And it's likely that James is speaking into an issue that may have been somewhat of a consistent problem in the churches that he was aware of. Certain men may have been seizing the title of teacher, uh, similar to the Jewish equivalent of rabbi, who were not either morally or intellectually qualified for such a position. I think uh, of several years ago, I was able to teach at an international school in Cambodia, and I remember a conversation with some of the missionaries that were there, and they were talking about how hesitant they were to ever give a title of Lokru, which meant teacher, to any uh, native Cambodian, because there was something about the fabric of their society that it would seem it would fill them with pride and the idea of using words to influence people. There was this sort of sense of, oh, you're, you're, you're a low crew? You're, you're a teacher? Oh, wow. Man, I want to be that. I can't wait to. And there's this sense of like, I want to rise to power so I can stand above people and influence them with words. And that may be similar to what James has in mind here. In his day and age, you can imagine how people probably didn't read and write. Nothing like they do today. The most convincing voice that claimed the most knowledge was oftentimes the one who swayed the masses. So this is why James begins the way he does in verse 1. He says in James 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So like the good teacher that he is, James begins here, He begins his subject at hand with an illustration. Teachers, watch out. Teachers should be few in number, for it's a burden to bear rather than a title to be enjoyed. Why, we might ask? Well, because a stricter judgment awaits those 
who speak, those whose words are many. Our words are very, very significant to God. We live in a culture where words are cheap, don't we? They're just words. We don't, they don't matter, right? It seems that not a month goes by where there's not some professional athlete or somebody in the news uh, that says something that's either politically correct or just sort of is taken in a way that could be misconstrued and just like vultures descending on this person, the media comes after them and they always say, did your words actually reflect your actual beliefs? And of course, this happens every time. I'm just amazed. They go on Twitter and they tell all their followers, I apologize to anyone I may have offended. My words in no way reflect what I believe. And it's as if those are the magic words and we go, oh, good. I was hoping he didn't actually speak things that he believed. I mean, that's a crazy thought that he would actually speak things that come from somewhere that he's been churning on for a while. No. And it's as if we go, oh, yeah, that's right. Of course, who are we to think that words could actually be believed by the person? Talk is cheap. But throughout the book of James, there are these echoes of the words of our Lord. We're reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 12 when he says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That's chilling. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So according to Jesus, a judgment awaits all people. And this judgment will sift through the glossary of every person's speech. This search will either find a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, validated by a life that honors Him, or it will find confessions of a person's love affair and loyalty to broken, corrupt worldliness that dishonors the glory of God at every turn. If Jesus is right, our words always, always reflect our heart. We speak because of what's inside. It's a sounding board for our heart. Verse 2, we read, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man also able to bridle his whole body. Truer words have never been spoken. We all stumble in many ways. I've asked people from time to time a question that I remember being asked. What one area in your life do you feel that if you saw growth, you feel that your spiritual life would sort of just take off spiritually? Is there a certain area? Oftentimes the the answer is, you know, it's my thought life, um, personal purity, uh, bitterness, anger, things like that. But I don't know if I've ever heard someone say, without a doubt, my tongue. It's my tongue. Sometimes, maybe. But do we ever put it in that category of if, if a person controls 
that. He is a spiritually complete, mature person. We tend to downplay the tongue's significance. But James says, if you control this small member of your body, you're spiritually mature, able to control the whole body for the glory of God. Old Testament wisdom literature, and specifically Proverbs, repeatedly speaks to the importance of a person's speech. Just listen through a few Proverbs from Proverbs 16 through 18. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, I love this, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. (laughs) Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So James continues to illustrate the tongue's power by means of vivid pictures that would have been easily understood in his day. So we read in verses 3 through 5. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue directs the course of a person's entire life. In the same way a bit guides a horse and a rudder guides a ship. Both our internal speech, that is to say our thoughts, and our spoken words. They set the direction of our lives. Scan your thoughts for a moment. Isn't that true? Who we are in our hearts ultimately comes out in our speech and really largely sets the course of our lives. But let's not view the tongue as having a mind of its own. Let's not fall into that trap. Even the tongue is simply that sounding board for the heart. It's still the will of the rider who pulls on the reins on the horse and directs it. And it's still the sailor who controls the rudder and turns the boat. So it is clearly still the heart of man where the real battle lies. So as if talk of judgment in verse 1 was not enough to sober us to the tongue's power, James moves from simply conveying a natural power of the tongue to now a rather scary turn, the destructive power. That is in the tongue. So we read in verses 6 through 8. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members. Staining the whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of life. And is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird. Of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. And has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, 
full of deadly poison. Wow. John Calvin once described the tongue as that slender portion of flesh containing a whole world of iniquity. The tongue can stain the whole body. This is the very same word that James uses in chapter 1 when he describes the staining effect that the world has upon our hearts. So we see here sort of his themes coming together. One of the main ways in which we stain ourselves with this world is through the instrument that is right here. The tongue is so often used to do the staining. Have you ever met a person whose speech was just entirely repulsive? It didn't take you but a few seconds with that person and you, it, it, was, it was almost as if the defining characteristic of that individual was just a putrid sort of nasty speech. As if it were staining their whole body. The tongue can set the entire course of a person's life on the fiery path to hell. It would appear that Satan himself loves to throw kindling on the tongue's destructive ability. Our tongues act as the spokesperson for our hearts. As our primary representative, our tongues verbally chart the course of our lives. The tongue cannot be tamed by any human being. It's a restless evil. Restless, that's the same Greek word for the word unstable in chapter 1, describing the double-minded man. There's this instability about it, almost as if a a chemical compound that's about to react. There's this restless uh, nature to, to the tongue where it just wants to lash out in a new, fresh way, in an evil sort of manner. It's bad news. The tongue is full of deadly poison. You can almost imagine James picturing the serpent in the garden when he's writing this using the serpent that used his speech to directly call into question god's speech did god really say you should not eat of any fruit of the garden and sadly our tongues are more like satan's than like god's after hearing these descriptions our natural response is to say hang on a second let me process this Is this what I think it means? Knowing how evil the tongue is is one thing. Got it. But no human being has ever tamed this thing? What hope do we have? That's the most demoralizing news you could tell me, James. Is this some sort of cruel joke? You started out your book by saying true religion, and I'm thinking, I want to have true religion. (laughs) It's controlling the tongue. By the way, no one's ever done it. Good luck. Should we just throw in the towel? Hang it up right there? (laughs) And yet I think if we're there, we're where we're supposed to be. Because James knows no man can tame the tongue. Only God can do that. James knows that true religion requires new hearts. Hearts that, like King David, cry out in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. It is only a redeemed heart 
made whole ultimately through the gospel of Jesus Christ that enables a person to control their speech and live a genuinely authentic Christian life. No man can do this. Only God, through His Spirit, working in the heart of an individual, can accomplish such transformation. James concludes the paragraph in verses 9 through 12 by stating about the tongue, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So in our day, the the idea of blessing someone is little more than offering a, a trite automatic phrase after they sneeze. Bless you. And that's about as far as it goes. And cursing someone may be just that short outburst that we witness our neighbor have with another neighbor when he's angry about something. And that's what we think. But in the ancient world, this would have been far more significant. As Douglas Moo points out, people in the ancient world attributed great power to the curse. The ancient curse was far more than just abusive language. It called on God to, in effect, cut a person off entirely from any possible blessing and consign that person to hell itself. This is precisely why Jesus commanded his disciples to bless those who curse them. This was no small matter. The paragraph concludes with words reminiscent of our Lord in Luke 6. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. If the tongue all only speaks what is first in the heart, our only hope of controlling our speech is to undergo a transformation of our heart through the enlivening gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider the life of Christ for just a moment. Was there ever a time in his life where he was not tempted to respond sinfully with his speech? You can just read the gospels and and look at different periods of his life and see that temptation just abounded. Or imagine this. Imagine the guilt that may have sat heavy on a man like James. As the half-brother of Jesus Christ, I wonder how many words he has in the backlog of his mind that were jealous, envious, nasty, as he watched his brother always perfectly obey his parents, always do the right thing, If anyone had a bird's eye view on the only person who has ever 
controlled their tongue, it was James. It was because he'd seen it firsthand. The other end of Jesus' life also demonstrates the power of a controlled tongue. As he willingly subjected himself to the worst injustice the world would ever know. The prophet Isaiah foretold he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Can you just imagine the events of the cross? Recently in a Bible study with some some friends, we read through the account of the Lord's death. There's a lot there. It makes you linger in it for a while. And it should make us just marvel that our Savior did not say, what is going on? I've had enough. Listen, the, the crown of thorns, the flogging, the beating, the spitting, the making fun, that was all. But, but I'm not going up that hill. I'm not going through with this. I've had enough. After all, folks, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm innocent. He did not. He took this, not to atone for his own sin but with you in mind, with you in mind, with me in mind, for all the nasty words we've ever said within the privacy of our homes, with all the awful, careless words that we've done, he was saying, I'm about to give you my perfect record. My sinless speech is yours because I am your sinless substitute. If you struggle with your lips, there is hope. And it's not in yourself. James is pretty clear on that. You can't tame your tongue. But God can, because he has done it for you. One of the most beautiful things we can meditate on. Just think, this suffering servant who never once sinned with his tongue has offered himself for us so we might be clothed in his radiant purity. We have died, and our lives are hidden with Christ and God, as Paul says in Colossians 3. Only in the gospel do we have transformed hearts that result in speech that now loves to build up others, as we read in Ephesians 4 earlier. Loves to forgive others because Christ has forgiven us. It loves to resist corrupting talk with its clamor and slander and evil speech. So James has already warned against only being a hearer of the word and not a doer. So if we want to heed James's words, we better not leave this room without figuring out how to connect some of these dots. Because not a one of us is totally complete and mature. All of us sin with our speech. How can we take this with us, implement true religion in our lives so we can reflect God's character? Have a sober recognition of the power that lies in your tongue. Have a sober recognition of the power that lies in that small little piece of flesh that's in your mouth. 
realize what it can do. James doesn't give us these graphic, frightful pictures of the destruction that can come from our speech so that we can let it pass through our ears and not give it a second thought, right? We need to be shaken up over this. Christians, how will a lost world glorify your Father who is in heaven if they don't first see your good works, specifically the good works that are your speech? How? will they know the transforming power of the gospel if not through your words? If our words are just as negative and perverse as theirs, our religion is certainly worthless, as James says. Husbands, wives, parents, grandparents, teens, children, all of us, know this and believe it. You can set things on fire with your words. Not literally, of course, but... James is saying, your tongue is that kind of power. It is able to set things on fire. There is so much power in our tongues. We must repent for the arsonists that we really are in our hearts. The sad thing is that it's often directed towards the people we seem to, or we say we love the most. That doesn't make sense. This is not the life Christ has called us to live. Secondly, admit that you are hopelessly, hopelessly incapable of controlling your speech apart from your new life in Christ. Don't go at it alone. Remember that all your efforts in true religion are pointless if your heart has not been transformed by the gospel. You've totally missed it entirely this morning if you leave here just wanting to be a better person. And I hope our home groups, the conversations are not filled exclusively with how we can just sort of sharpen some rough edges in our lives. Let's first stare into the grace that has caused our hearts to change and how by looking into that, our speech naturally flows with purity. Remember, James tells you, you cannot do this. Run to Jesus Allow His Holy Spirit to work genuine obedience in your heart. Any attempts in this way would be as if you're giving physical therapy to a corpse. It's not going to do a whole lot. Thirdly, investigate your heart. And this is the tough, the tough area. Investigate your heart with honesty for specific ways in which your speech is hypocritical. It's the sort of thing where blessing and cursing are coming out of the same source that James says, this ought not so to be. And when you see these areas, repent. I think oftentimes we we hear the word of God and we think, well, that's interesting. You know, I'm going to tuck that away. I'm going to think about it even. I might write it down in my week, pull it out in the morning, and I'm going to think about it. And we forget the power of, of God's speech. When he says something, it's not up to us to consider it, put it in the I'll think about it category. We must turn right then and there. As we were singing earlier, our lives are but a fleeting breath, a sigh too deep to measure. We, we can't assume that we have all the time in the world. Let us repent today, even this morning, of our failures with our tongues 
And if we would see growth in speaking as God intends, we must be willing to call ourselves out in the areas where we need the most growth. James states, For we all stumble in many ways, which is certainly true of our speech. Some of us stumble by talking way too much, right? Sometimes we gossip about other people. Sometimes even within the church, jealousy and envy run rampant. And we don't just keep it to ourselves, we actually spread it. Bitter words about past hurts, or maybe you interacted with someone and you took their words a certain way, you never followed up for clarity, you just right then and there said, I don't like that person and I am not talking to them again. And months, years maybe have gone by and you've let that fester. And every now and then you let it sort of leak out in your conversations about that person to other people. Perhaps we commit the sin of partiality that we heard a few weeks ago and we choose to flatter other people with our words. People that we want to be in the good graces of. People we want to be known with. We don't use our words correctly, but we use to to leverage ourselves to better our image. We can easily do that. Or perhaps our sinful speech is done via social media and we excuse it by, hey, I'm just putting this out here. It's good for me. I need to vent. Makes me feel better. There it is. And we, we sort of get calloused and we say, if people don't like the way I am, well, that's their fault. Or perhaps you tend to be sort of a busybody, someone who's a little too nosy into people's lives, and you surmise certain things about them, and although you, you mean well, your words often confuse, mislead, and even instigate, rather than provide peace and comfort to other people. Or some of us stumble by talking far too little. That could be the other end for some of us. A failure to give gracious words when it's clearly the moment. As we read in Ephesians 4, as fits the occasion. The occasion's right before you and you shrink back in fear. I, I'll probably say it wrong. And You don't give grace. You don't give truth to your brother or sister in Christ. Perhaps it's that failure to share Christ with those who don't know Him. A failure to give the gospel, whether in your workplace, neighborhood, or something similar. Sometimes there's a failure to bear someone's burden because you'd just rather remain in your private comfort zone. We'd just rather not know. If I don't know, I'm happier. Ignorance is bliss, right? actually listening to someone means you're going to get some of their baggage. And there's hardly anything more Christian than bearing someone's burden with them. Is there anything more Christ-like than that? Knowing a little bit of this weight is going to be carried right here on these shoulders. And sometimes we can just say, I just don't have time for that. I'm just not going there. And we make a beeline for the door and we're gone. God's Spirit does a fantastic job of pointing out these areas. Will you ask Him? Will you seek Him? Commit to repent and walk in newness of life in these areas where He puts the spotlight. And lastly, 
Utilize the unbelievable gift of speech. Use it. This is one of God's greatest gifts to us. Let's not let it be hijacked by those who distort it. Nothing more godlike than when we speak truth to one another. Maximize our times together as a church family to minister gracious words to one another. Perhaps this is after a service. Perhaps this is before a service. Maybe it's sort of something you want to talk about with your family. Of, you know, we're going to commit to come in 10 or 15 minutes early and, and we're even going to stay a little bit late for this exact purpose so we can just talk. So much ministry happens and, and none of us even pick up on it. It's going on all around us as we're taking our seats, as we're leaving, as we're walking down the hallway. It's right here. Put yourself in the way of that. Prioritize just the organic, informal ministry that your words can have when we gather together as a church family. Perhaps Wednesday nights is something that you've uh, not taken advantage of. And, and you know you can in your schedule. And there is something beautiful about a, few, a group of men, group of ladies getting together and just sharing thoughts about a passage of Scripture, sharing how they need grace to obey it, and then bearing those burdens together. Perhaps that's a great time to use your words to minister to each other and to be ministered to. We must fight the urge to just plop down and zone out. It's easy, isn't it? Let's use the incredible gift of our speech to give grace to those who hear, as the Apostle Paul says. Sometimes this might be in the form of loving rebuke. When you see your brother or sister apparently hardening to the work of God in their lives. The author of Hebrews anticipates this. And he says in chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, that's verbal, (laughs) exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All of us are just as vulnerable as Eve was in the garden to the lies of Satan, the deceitfulness of our own hearts and the deceitfulness that comes at us in the form of temptation. We need God's church if we're going to live genuine, true religion as James intends. What about prayer? Prayer has got to be one of the most underutilized purposes of our speech. If offering words of wisdom or encouragement seems too daunting for you, perhaps simply offering to pray with someone. In a certain sense, each time we pray, we seize back from Satan the very thing he sought to destroy in the garden. Fellowship with God. What about singing? Do you like to sing? Maybe you have a bad voice, or you think you do. It's okay. You realize how many Christians for generations have thought of their hymnals in very different ways than we do? We think of them as those things we occasionally touch that are in the seats in front of us. Think about using one. And I I, I would love to just just blitz you with, with tons of Uh, awesome hymnals. There's one I just got this week that's fantastic. It has more songs that we sing as a congregation than any other one hymnal, and it's free. You just sign up online. It's amazing. 
You need it. You should get it. And what an amazing way to, to sing back to God. Perhaps your own prayers are, are slow coming. You can hardly put words to your emotions, your, your trial. Others have, and they wrote them down. And God's allowed them to, to be passed on to us. Use them. Sing them. I found this even in my own life recently on a more regular basis, just encouraging, very encouraging. Use your speech to bless God in private, and I assure you it will greatly aid your skill in blessing God's people in public. The tongue is uncontrollable and unbelievably destructive, but with a transformed heart, that only Jesus Christ provides, we may bridle our speech and in so doing demonstrate true religion to a lost and broken world. This is the hope that we have in the scriptures this morning. And this is the hope we have in the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we repent. We're not going to lie to ourselves and try to convince our own hearts that we're better off at this than, than we actually are. We're not even aware, Lord, of the ways in which we not only sin with our tongues, but fail to bless with our speech. Lord, have mercy on us. May we be the people of God that you desire us to be. I pray for hearts this morning that you would guard us against the temptation to try to just engage in a moral improvement program. Just be kinder, nicer. Life will go better probably for us if we act that way. Help us to see that true religion starts with a transformed heart. Father, I pray for those who don't know what a transformed heart is. Lord, may today be the day that they exercise speech and confess Jesus Christ is the only Lord. And he is my Lord. I accept the perfect life and the perfect death that he lived and died for me. Lord, help us to believe that you are our delight and our reward. Help us to look at the scriptures and the law of the Lord as David did and say it's the sweetest thing that our tongues could ever touch. We love the scriptures and we love to speak words that bless you and bless your people. Father, I pray that even as we leave this morning, as we interact in our home groups, as we enter into a whole other year, and as thoughts and are fresh on our minds about what we'll do differently, Lord, may we seek your face regarding our speech. Help us to look to you. Help us to receive the grace that only you can provide to be the people that you desire us to be. We ask this for your glory. Amen.